Hello everyone, and welcome to the Quorum Podcast. This is where academic medicine meets remote, austere, and resource-limited areas. So welcome back to the program. This is Averical Kelly. This week, we are talking with Jason Jarvis. Jason, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you, Abrick. Jason and I go back 30 years. We were in 3rd Special Forces Group, 1st Special Forces Group. We're even in 2ID, not at the same time, but each one of those units, we were kind of staggered. How was your experience in 3rd Group and 1st Group? Uh, well, the experience in 3rd Group was uh, sort of what made me decide to get into Special Forces. Uh, I, I got there back in, God, what year was that? 94, uh, just coming out of Korea. And I was a, uh, a leg, as they say, I was a non-airborne person, uh, stuck into a special forces group. So that was, that was quite an eye opener. Luckily the, you know, the guys there at third group took care of me. They, they sent me to jump school immediately. Uh, they weren't going to have any legs, you know, running around the, the, the unit there. So went to jump school and then went to, uh, went to Haiti uh, the second wave uh, that third group did down there, and uh, that, that was a real eye opener. Spending three months in Haiti with with the third group guys, um, that that was really when I started thinking about um, getting ready for selection, so I could be one of the team guys, like the guys I was seeing running around the countryside there, um, seeming like they were doing good things. So when you invaded Haiti, you were based in Lacay, weren't you? No, you're based in Port-au-Prince. I was at it's called it's called Camp d'Application. Uh, that's my best French accent <laughs> or Creole as the, as the case may be. Um, so yeah, Camp D was was just up the hill from Port-au-Prince. It was it was essentially the old uh, the old Haitian version of West Point. The the campus had somehow landed in U.S. Army ha- hands. So, so we moved in, uh, made it our own. It was, it was really nice. You know, we had a swimming pool and tennis courts and a gun range and uh, walled compound, the whole nine yards. So it was a really nice place to be for, uh, for three months. And um, yeah, that was, that was a really great experience there. And it was my, I guess you call it my second time in the tropics after having done um, vacation in uh, India and Nepal previously. That's right. You you took time off from being on the DMZ and, and 2ID and you traveled around and that was your first experience in tropical zones. How how was that? That was probably the most probably the most impactful journey of my life um going from you know, I, I was a country kid from Michigan got posted in Korea, which was a pretty radical uh, change of scenery, as you can imagine. And then I, you know, upped the ante once more. And instead of going home for 30 days of leave uh, while I was in Korea, I decided to go over to India and Nepal. So I got over there. Uh, It was a solo trip. I was, I was a private, you know, in the army. So I was on a shoestring budget, you know, staying at the, staying at the $1 hostels and taking a bus or a train everywhere you know, eating uh, the cheapest food I could find. So it was uh, it was a very immersive experience. And, and the impact was huge, just the, the cultural difference. And, uh, you know, seeing, you know, seeing levels of poverty that I had never seen. I think, I think most, I think most people in the West probably never see unless they go to, 
slums of India or, or whatnot. So it was a little bit like, uh, I'll use an analogy here. It was a little bit like the, uh, like the Che Guevara motorcycle diaries, uh, kind of experience where he, <laughs> him and his buddy just jumped on a motorcycle and drove around South America. And, uh, uh, Che was a kind of a rich guy, but he got out there and saw how bad things were. So, and that, that impacted him in a way that, uh, sort of impacted my life as well. And you were lucky enough after the Q course, you were sent to first group and you got to go right back to that part of the world. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I finished the, I finished the 18 Delta course, the special forces medic course and got trained up in the, the Thai language. So I ended up at first group in Washington state and, um, all, all of my deployments from that unit were Thailand, Laos and Korea. You had all the, the, easy deployments. I, I was in second battalion, which is cold weather battalion. You were third battalion, which is the, the hot weather, warm weather battalion. And, and you basically had luols and drinking Mai Tais in, in Chiang Mai. That's, that's what we thought anyway, in second battalion. Yeah. It wasn't, those not really the Mai Tais. It was more like really, really cheap beer, but yeah, you know, um, you know, going, going to the tropics, uh, with the military, you know, you, you sort of learn things such as, uh, there, there's no physical training that takes place after 8 a.m. Uh, after 8 a.m., everyone is just melting in the sun. So you, you get out early, do your runs and calisthenics and all that kind of stuff. And then there's, there's no PT after about 8 a.m. In, in that part of the world. So you spent some time in first group, and then we both got out roughly the same time. I think you got out in 2001. Is that right? Yeah. I get, well, I got out in 2000, and um, I, I did some college. I was uh, looking at you know possibly going to medical school. Uh, I ended up taking a job as a paramedic firefighter uh, in Washington State. And after after 9-11, I decided I would probably best served my country by being back in the military. So I, I, I re-upped for uh, active duty service with uh, 19th uh, Special Forces Group, which is one of the guard units here in Washington State. And you also did deployments as a civilian, didn't you? I didn't do any deployments with 19th Group. Uh, I joined them and, uh, you know, this was like a week after 9-11. I, I joined the unit and basically we... The only thing anyone was focused on was getting over to the Middle East, uh, which we did uh, several months later. So we got over to Kuwait. We were doing a we were doing a uh, Kuwaiti military uh, training mission uh, with those guys, and we were in country for um, a few months prior to the 2003 invasion um, into Iraq. Uh, so we were we were there. Uh, my team nine one three. We were. We were staying at a Kuwaiti military base near the Iraqi border. And because we uh, were very familiar with uh, the border there between the two countries, uh, our team was selected to do the passage of friendly lines. So on the invasion day uh, in April 2003, we were up on the border uh, just watching all the Marines driving north up, up Highway 80, the, the Highway of Death. That's uh, what they called that back in Gulf War One. So we were there posted up just making sure really that the, the Marines going across the border weren't uh, accident, accidentally shooting any of the Kuwaitis who were also 
uh, manning the border on that day. And then you, you and I met again with DMI, Deployment Medicine International, and, and teaching for Dr. Hagman. Yep. You were there before me, though. You were, you, I got there in 07. Yeah, so I did my time with 19th Group over in uh, Kuwait and Iraq. We did eventually uh, get over into Iraq uh, for a few days. And then upon redeployment, I immediately signed on with a couple contract companies uh, providing medical and security support. So I spent some time in Afghanistan uh, with uh, contract companies. And then I ended up back in Iraq with uh, another contract company for four years, uh, most of which was spent in, uh, in Basra down in the south. Uh, near the near the Kuwait border once again, and uh, I I basically did that until I uh, grew weary of getting uh, mortared uh, constantly. So so my time uh, you know my time over there in the Middle East was at a, at a close in 2007, and then I uh, returned to the states, and then went yeah went to work for Deployment Medicine International. And we taught all over the place with DMI and eventually teaching in, in Europe as well. Did you did you get over to teach for Hagman in, in Italy? Not Italy. We did one in Germany at one of, I forget which base it was. Um, it, it was one of the German bases where they have the, 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 the mock-up uh, you know, indigenous village with all the actors, role players, and all that kind of thing. Uh, we had like the action amps guys, I think, over from England. Uh, the, the actors with real amputations that they have a makeup artist sort of dress up so they look like they've got like a freshly amputated limb. So that was, uh, I think that was the only thing I did in Germany with, uh, with DMI. Well, no, you you did the battles course for the MOD. Ah, yes, there was that. Um, yeah, my, that was a long time ago. Yeah, so we, yeah, we, you and I were both over on uh, battles uh, here and there, um, which was a, Excellent program. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed my time in the UK and Germany. I have a great photo of you, Jason, where you were getting a, a cash from an ATM and you had to kneel down because it was so low to the ground for the locals that you you, you couldn't. Uh, it, it was brilliant, you, you, and you, I think you had a, lo- a local next to you. It looked like a hobbit or something, but uh, yeah, there. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you were, there weren't used to people as tall as you walking around. No, uh, that's, that's a lot of places I've been, um, Asia and Malta. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about Malta. So in, uh, 2014, 2015, I think we got you to come over to Pretty Bay for a year. Yeah. Yeah. You, uh, you kindly reached out and, uh, offered to have me come over and work with you on the, uh, it's mainly the, the T-TEMS program as well as the the remote paramedic program. So, uh, yeah, I spent a year, uh, over Malta with you and, uh, brought my family over. And that was, that was an incredible experience. It, it was a great experience for me professionally, uh, just sort of getting back into, you know, paramedic science. I, I think I'd been out of that for a while. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the things that we do in the, in the 18th Delta course that if, you know, if it's, it's the, it's the classic, if you don't use it, you lose it. So it was a lot of the, you know, the, the finer points of diagnostic tools and, you know, orthopedic exams and dermatologic conditions and tropical medicine, uh, and all of that. So it was, it was nice to get back into that and, um, you know, take a break from just being a, a full-time traumatologist, uh, in training. And during that year, we went to a trip to Jordan and we went to South Africa as well. Yeah, both, both of those were, were great trips. I, I wish we'd I wish we'd gotten to do more in Jordan. 
but um, yeah, we, we spent, it was about a month or so in South Africa. So we, yeah, I went, went and saw uh, Swaziland and then we, we, we ran our uh, remote paramedic course down in East London, which was, which was a beautiful area there in uh, Southeastern South Africa. Uh, we didn't get you to Tanzania until later though. Uh, that was what, 2017? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. Tell, tell us what your experience was with, with KCMC and, and teaching in Tanzania. So teaching in Tanzania was was wonderful. Um, we had we had great support from the locals, uh, with all of the uh, KCMU faculty, uh, to include the uh, the anatomist who gave us kind of free reign of the the cadaver lab, which is a fantastic training tool. Uh, and then of course Dr. Francis uh, over at uh, KCMC, the, the, the ER doc who is uh, a member of Quorum faculty. And, uh, yeah, and that's, that's another one of these just beautiful locations to, to live in, to teach in, uh, you know, full of uh, great people and great food and, and all of it. So there was yeah, a lot of good experiences there. I, I remember you wanted to get out of having to take a taxi everywhere. So you got a motorcycle around Tanzania to, uh, to, to be able to go to down to uh, Indo Italiana restaurant or, uh, Ranchero restaurant. How how is the experience riding a motorcycle in a country where motorcycles were all over the place and they were they were giving out to you a bit as well, weren't they? Yeah, not, not too much. Tanzania the traffic is probably one of the uh, it's probably one of the easier places I've had to drive. Traditionally, whenever I go to uh, Southeast Asia for for work, I'll just rent a, a scooter like on day one, because it's just really the best way to get around. Southeast Asian traffic is quite harrowing. And I, I think I think driving around in Bangkok is still, I think that's still the, the most difficult place I've had to drive anywhere. So yeah, uh, you know, Moshi, Tanzania, uh, where we teach uh, there at Kilimanjaro, it's a small town, uh, there's not too much traffic. So it wasn't too bad getting around on the, on the motorcycle. I think they kind of enjoyed seeing a big, tall white guy being on a motorcycle in the traffic of the motorcycle taxis. We would be behind you in, in the, because I'm not going to ride it on motorcycles. And in, in, uh, Eric and I would be, no, Eric had a, a motorcycle too, he didn't did. he? Both of you guys had a motorcycle. And I would be in the, the, the taxi behind you. So in, in your experience in Pretty Bay, Malta, you and I came up with some pretty interesting concepts and and one of them is sheep vomit and i have to be honest to say that was not my original idea that was yours and and were were we sober i don't remember we might not have been we, we may not have been um you know we, we were just having a scrabble contest really uh you know either one of us could have come up with that we just to give our listeners a backstory we were trying to refine the, the nursing care part of prolonged field care. And there's a few different models out there of what constitutes a good checklist for nursing care uh, when you're doing prolonged field care. So we had these different checklists. And if you look at them all side by side, you'll notice that uh, this is a few years ago when we came up with this. Uh, some of them have subjects or topics that other ones don't have. So essentially, we just made sort of a Venn diagram of all these different systems. And we took all of the, all of the points of performance from all these different systems. Uh, none of them had all of them. So, so we put them all into one pot. And, you know, I always tell students, like, 
you know, don't bother trying to memorize sheep vomit. Um, I said, really, that is, you know, it could be in any sequence. And it was more, it was more of just a tool for instructors to, uh, you know, be able to teach this, right? So when, whenever we're teaching, you know, primary assessments or secondary assessments or um, a lot, lots of things that we teach, we have, we have acronyms and mnemonics and all these kinds of things. And, and some of those are practical, right? Like ABCs is a very practical mnemonic for, you know, your, your classic um, sick patient or motor vehicle collision casualty. And then if we have a, uh, a casualty with penetrating trauma, we'll typically use March. And, and so those have very practical value. Um, when you, when you have things that are a little bit more sort of esoteric uh, and more difficult to memorize, things like, like the Glasgow Coma Scale or, you know, the nursing care points of performance that we're talking about, uh, those, those things are very difficult to memorize, at least they are for me. So I don't expect, I don't expect field practitioners to just, you know, you have to memorize the Glasgow Coma Scale or, you know, the nursing care checklist because, Normally, what people will do is if they run into something like that, they'll pull out a checklist and look at it and go, oh, okay, this is this, is this and this is that and so forth. But it's, it's a little bit different when you're the teacher. When you're, when you're the instructor, uh, I think you should be able to pull just about any of these informational tidbits just out of your head and present it to the class. Uh, I think that's just, I think that's how instructors should, you know, do their thing. Uh, but I don't expect every single medical practitioner to be able to, you know, recite the Glasgow Coma Scale or some of these other things like the, the nursing care checklist. It's a valid point. We, we're doing this to help us teach more than we were doing this to help practitioners remember everything in the prolonged field care algorithm. Yeah, exactly. And this sheep vomit is now showing up everywhere. Yeah, we published it first in, in our field guide, but I, I remember seeing a a conference in emergency medicine somewhere in the States. And one of the lecturers was talking about sheep vomit. And I don't know, I didn't know the guy never, never bought any of the field guides, but it's, uh, it's kind of going viral. And this is your, your fault. I, I'll be first to, to pass the buck on that one. Jason. Well, like I said, I was just a better Scrabble player. <laughs> yeah. I think the one I was coming up with probably would have been inappropriate for most audiences. So I'm glad we went with yours. Yeah. Well, and I, I just want to interject one thing when I, you know, and pull on field care is something that I haven't really seen much. And, and maybe, maybe the pull on field care checklist isn't the place where it needs to be necessarily, but uh, maybe it does. And it's something that uh, I'm seeing a lot of when I'm doing training with the United Nations over in Africa, when we're over there doing our uh, pre-deployment medical training for indigenous healthcare practitioners that are going to be deployed as uh, peacekeepers. Uh, and that is, uh, uh, psychological first aid. This is another one of those things where I think people just assume it's going to happen or they, they assume they're going to do it. And it, I don't know if that needs to be on a checklist. I mean, that, that, I mean, it seems a little silly, but you know, we have other, we have other things in that checklist that you also assume people are going to do, but maybe they won't like, Oh, by the way, this patient needs water. Uh, they need calories. They're going to have to urinate at some time. So we have checklists for things that are super basic, you know, activities of daily living kind of things. You know, I've been thinking more and more about introducing some of the, you know, psychological first aid concepts into 
prolonged field care because I'm not really seeing it there in the in the current literature so much. That's a valid statement, and and I th- I think I put in one page and only one page on our second edition field guide that addressed psychological first aid, and perhaps we need to move that from the clinical section into the prolonged field care section and expand on it. Yeah, and it's. You know, and it's, I mean, psychological first aid is, it's not just something that you would do in prolonged field care. You know, if you have a, if there's a 20 minute evacuation time from the point of injury, that's not prolonged field care, but you still want to, you know, do some things to, uh, you know, reassure your casualty, try to calm them down, try to, you know, alter their perception of the, the pain and the stress and all that kind of stuff. So I think it fits, I think it fits in any phase of care, really. What we tend to do as as medics and and you know docs and PAs and things like that, at least initially, we're kind of like a car mechanic. Like we're just going to come in and we're just going to fix stuff, right? And um, everything else is kind of secondary. Well, um, I, I think it's I think it's important to yeah, let's fix things like you know the classic. Let's keep the blood moving through the body. Let's keep the air going in and out of the chest. Yeah, let's fix those things and. While we're doing some of these more kind of indirect measures like preventing hypothermia and a lot of our procedures, you know, we need to make sure we're including uh, some kind of psychological comforts, uh, psychological first aid. That's a valid point. And, and maybe that's something that you and I can have a chat about as we design the third edition of the field guide. Yeah. So the field guide is something that you and I came up with. And that originated from our teaching of, of the remote paramedic program and, and Pretty Bay Malta. And basically, when, when you came on staff, you started printing out hundreds of sheets of notes for the students. And I just, I was looking at all the dead trees on our table and I'm like, you know what? Why don't we just print all of this out, put it in a field guide and then give that to the student instead of printing out all these, these notes. And, and you were the one that came up with, Hey, these guys probably should have this info and this info and this info. And then, then you and I created the first field guide, printed just enough for the class. And, and this is in 2015, I think it was, and saw how they used it. And then we added and, and changed and added and changed it. And you and I were the ones that, I mean, it, it was brilliant, Jason, to have you there. And we're just bouncing concepts and thoughts back and forth over Chisk beers in, in the waterfront hotel there right on Pretty Bay and, and, and how we could enhance this. And I finally got you to stop printing out tons and tons of A4 paper of each class. And we put that into the field guide to the point where the first edition came out in 2017, I believe it was. The second edition came out. 2020 and now we're looking at the third edition and uh hope well that's up to you you're the quorum press director yeah i I think the i think the third edition is is you know i think as time has come uh i'm i'm really eager to get to work on that i've already got i've got pages of notes on you know things to add things to maybe take out things to modify and so forth so I'm, i'm really looking forward to to getting into that and we we gave this field guide out on our NSOCM program. In fact, you and I designed the Tropical Medicine Week for the NATO Special Operations Combat Medic in Fohlendorf, Germany. And we taught on that. How many how many years were you there? Uh, I came there two years. So I think I think Corm you know Corm was there year one, and I wasn't on that one. But I came back for year two and year three that the Corm was there. 
and then, yeah, and then COVID hit, and then yeah, we haven't been back since. But we designed the the original Trot Med off of our TTEMS course. So the TTEMS course has been something that has been that's kind of launched, hasn't it? You and I in in, in Malta in Pretty Bay in Malta in 2015 2016 sat down and we created this the TTEMS course, the Tropical Travel Expedition Medical Skills course, and now it is is kind of taken taken off worldwide we have three or four per year and we've taught this in several different countries and recently in norway tell us about your experiences this summer in norway so the norway course we just did was uh i don't know if we're calling that t-tems that was that was just hot med yeah yeah it was five days of tropical medicine which was i i thought it was fantastic uh that was that was the kind of course I've been itching to teach for, for many years now since I really got really interested in tropical medicine. And part of that is you're putting together a TropMed field guide. Yes. Uh, I've got a list of projects for Quorum. Uh, one of them very high on the list is the, the TropMed field guide, which I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to creating. And that will be that will basically serve as the the backbone for our diploma in tropical medicine course that we can hopefully launch next year. Yeah. So the the TMC the TropMed course that we did for Norway was basically week one of our diploma tropical medicine and hygiene that we have. It, it's a postgraduate diploma that we have approved to the EU, and we we are putting this together to start launching that. What what are your plans for that? I guess the, you know, the, the satellite view of this would be uh, we'll have one version of the diploma course where the, the schoolhouse time or the, you know, the, whatever you call that, the in-person time. I know there's a term for that. Contact time, classroom time. So the contact time will most likely be in Malta. That's where we're running uh, just about everything these days. So the contact time will be in Malta and uh, where they'll do you know, the, the microscopy and all, all the hands-on uh, skills. Uh, the rest of it, uh, as, as I understand, will be, will be online uh, slash virtual. So, you know, there will be things that are pre-recorded. We'll have, uh, we'll have live interactions like Zoom calls and, and whatnot. So I, I see that as like version one of a uh, diploma course. And, and there's, there's quite a few educational institutions in the world that are, that are currently doing that. Uh, version two, which I'm more excited to to get into, is is where we've got the contact time taking place in a in a place in the tropics where the the students can see and interact with uh, patients experiencing tropical diseases. Yeah, we we have a couple of feelers out, obviously KCMC in in Moshi, Tanzania, but we're also looking at Kamasi in Ghana, which is upcountry above Accra. And they have quite a bit of falciparum malaria still. Yeah, I, I would be I'd be happy with either one of those places. Um, where uh, the place I would most like to get into is Uganda, uh, which if you uh, you know if you sit down and look at a tropical medicine textbook, you'll find uh, this might be an exaggeration, but it seems like about half of our tropical diseases that we have you know, in the world. It seems like about half of them or so came from Uganda or originated in that area, or it was first described kind of coming from uh, Central Africa there. And you have some contacts there in Western Uganda that you're looking into. Yes, yes, I have some feelers out and we'll hopefully uh, be able to follow through on that. 
Speaking of tropical medicine, uh, you and I and, and Dr. Mike Schertz spent some time on the border of, of Myanmar in Thailand. How was that? Uh, that, that was a great experience. Uh, you know, getting into Southeast Asia is always, uh, is always a good experience. Uh, it's a, it's a really fascinating part of the world with the people and the history and the, you know, the food is great and it's, it's very safe, uh, for the most part in that part of the world. Uh, so yeah, we, we were there running a, uh, yeah, full contact, uh, tropical medicine course where we would, uh, have lectures in a, in a hotel conference room. And, and then we would spend part of the day out, uh, with some indigenous, uh, people in the area that were, uh, actually Burmese refugees. I had been to that part of Thailand previously doing a similar sort of training and, uh, before we got there, malaria was very, very prevalent. Uh, and this is, this is in the town of Mesot, uh, which is the, probably the biggest, uh, gateway into Burma going from Thailand. So we were in Mesot, uh, teaching there. Uh, so previously there were lots of malaria cases there. There's a thing there called the SMRU, which is the, the Shoklo Malaria Research Unit. So, and it was put there because of all the malaria. Well, in the time that I had been there to the time that we showed up uh, as, as quorum faculty, the, uh, the malaria cases had really sort of dried up. So, uh, which is great for, you know, it's great for the locals, obviously, if you can, if you can start certifying areas disease free from things like malaria, that's, uh, that's a really good thing for the, for the locals. Um, unfortunately for us, that decreased our, um, you know, caseload, if you will, of uh, patients that our students could go see. Yeah, it was good to see the anti-malarial campaigns of the Bill Gates Foundation, as well as the government of, of Thailand being very strict on anti-malarial drugs uh, have, a, have a good effect. And, and we're seeing similar things in, in KCMC area in Moshi, northern Tanzania, where falciparum, they, they still get it, but it's rare. There's still plenty of Vivax, but these eradication programs are working. And of course, now the, the vaccine is up and running. Can you tell us a bit about the, the vaccine for, for malaria? As a matter of fact, yes, I can. You're, you're doing your master's degree on that, aren't you? Yes, I'm, I'm writing my master's thesis on the up-and-coming malaria vaccines. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to be brief uh, as well as I can here. So the, the world has one um, you know, clinically approved malaria vaccine. It's called R RTSS. Uh, which targets the, 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 the first stage of the malaria disease process, which is the, uh, the parasite as it comes out of the mosquito, um, taking the blood meal, it comes out of the mosquito, uh, and then goes to the liver. So the malaria vaccine we have targets that stage, none of the other stages. But if you can nip that stage in the bud, then you're preventing infection of the liver, infection of the red blood cells, and so forth. And if that vaccine works for that person, then you have you know, you have a disease-free uh, patient, basically. Uh, unfortunately, well, the, the situation now is the, the vaccine was only recently approved for, you know, widespread clinical use in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, I believe two years ago was the approval uh, timeline. And it is, it is currently approved for uh, very small children living in sub-Saharan Africa, which is well over 90% of your malaria deaths per year are in that, uh, you know, cohort, right? It's the sub-Saharan, uh, small children in Africa. And the, the reason, the, the physiologic reason why they're so vulnerable is 
number one, there's a lot of malaria there. Number two, it's it's mostly the the malaria species that's that's that has the most lethality, the Plasmodium falciparum. Uh, and then number three, uh, which is maybe the most important reason, is you have small children who, you know, we're talking about children that are you know six months to one year to two years old. Uh, these are children that are, are being weaned off breast milk, uh, which leaves them vulnerable to uh, any sort of infection, uh, not just malaria. But as they come off the breast milk, they're they're no longer getting the maternal antibodies. And now it's, you know, it's kind of like pushing a baby bird out of the nest. Like, okay, now you have to go fly, right? But that's like, that's the analogy I have for the, uh, the kid's immune system. So we have, a, we have a very immature immune system that's trying to, you know, ward off all these different diseases. Uh, it does not any longer have the benefit of the maternal antibodies. So you have this little window between having a mature immune system and losing the maternal antibodies where the where you, you have the most susceptibility to a, uh, a severe malaria infection. So, so that's who the RTSS uh, vaccine, uh, that's the cohort that it's meant for. Uh, we, we still have not had it approved for adults. Um, now, most African adults, uh, the vast majority of them have had malaria previously, and they have, uh, if, you've had a, if you've had malaria already and survived, you do have partial immunity to the uh, to the disease, which unfortunately wanes over time. But it's it's not very common for uh, an indigenous adult in Africa to get malaria and actually die from that. So so that's not really where the that's not really where the vaccine efforts are mostly targeted right now. Uh, they're trying to hit that that young age group where they have the most um, susceptibility. So that's what we currently have. And one of the reasons I got into this thesis was looking at other, uh, you know, patient cohorts, such as people that don't live in Africa that are visiting for whatever reason. We have people doing, you know, safaris, expeditions. Uh, We have tourists. We have military deployments. Uh, We have a lot of what we call malaria naive people showing up on the continent. And if you've never had any exposure to malaria, um, your your immune system that's never seen this disease before can be very quickly overwhelmed. And if, you know, it, it's kind of a coin toss, you can either, you know, your immune system is going to beat it or or the person could die from it. And the, and the person can die very, very quickly from, uh, from plasmodium falciparum malaria. So, so one of my interests besides uh, trying to eradicate malaria or uh, mitigate malaria in the most susceptible age group, which is the young children, uh, I'm very interested in, well, what about people co- coming from outside? What about adults showing up in Africa? And, and they want to have some kind of protection against malaria other than taking a, a once-a-day chemoprophylaxis medication. So at the moment, this vaccine is only available for kids, well, 1.5 million of them, but it's not open to adults yet. Is that right? Yeah, that's my understanding. Uh, and, you know, all this, I mean, vaccine development is a, is, a, is a very quickly moving target, whatever disease you're talking about. And it's really fast for malaria because there are well over a dozen uh, strong malaria vaccine candidates uh, in the pipeline. Just based on my sort of preliminary research, I think 
I think the next one that's going to come along that's going to be a competitor to the RTSS vaccine that we currently have, uh, it's going to be something along the lines of something that's uh, genetically uh, attenuated, uh, what they call uh, what they call a uh, uh, genetically attenuated parasite. So this is something that you can do in, in a lab, and it's something that uh, you know with our current bioengineering technology, you can scale up very very quickly. Um, unlike, um, I, I believe the very first malaria vaccine success was, was a, were, uh, irradiated sporozoites. Um, and this was, I think decades ago, but the, the irradiated sporozoites were, you know, they were a malaria vaccine success, but that's not something that scales very easily. Uh, it takes a lot of work just to irradiate a sporozoite. And, uh, and making, you know, millions of doses of that, just uh, we haven't figured out how to do that at scale. But we're, we're in an age now where if you want to genetically modify an organism, that is something that we can scale up pretty quickly. So tell us why you decided to do your Master's of Infectious Disease from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Oh, well, uh, you know, a lot of this uh, a lot of that came from working with Quorum, and really it's based on all of my uh, experiences and, and education um, that I've had over the years, starting with the, the Special Forces Medic course back in 97. We did have a tropical medicine block in that year of training. I think it was roughly a month or so. Um, my memory of that was, wow, this is a lot of information uh, I mean, very, very new information. Uh, you know, if you're, like I said, a, a kid that grew up in Michigan, uh, you know, you, speaking from personal experience, you have no concept of, you know, global diseases and parasites and all these things that, you know, you don't have in, in this part of the world. So it was a really, really steep learning curve coming out of the 18 Delta course. But I was fortunate enough then to have, you know, I, I got to spend time in the tropics and, uh, and then mentoring under some incredible mentors over the years who were uh, very, very knowledgeable about tropical medicine and could explain it well. So these would be people like uh, Dr. Gail Hood, uh, uh, Doc Hagman, uh, and others. And, you know, once I got over the quorum, uh, I, 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 realized, I, I realized I was probably the, the person in the organization that had the most... Uh, training and experience with tropical medicine. So I just sort of took that on as like, okay, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just kind of drive this ship uh, as well as I can. And, and the more, uh, the deeper I got into it, the more uh, interesting it got. And, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a kind of, I'm kind of a sucker for things that are really complex that can be made simple. Um, and I think it's the most fascinating thing I've encountered in the field of medicine. This is, this is my personal thing. I know other people um, have other interests uh, within medicine, obviously, but I, I just, you know, like I said, I spent I spent years kind of as a as a traumatologist, and and you can get pretty deep into the weeds in that, but uh, once I started getting into tropical medicine, I realized like this is this is like the the deepest onion I've seen in medicine, where you can just you can keep zooming into this thing forever and never get to the bottom of 
all the all the intricacies and, and things that make it really interesting. You definitely took a deep dive starting in 2015 in Pretty Bay, Malta, taking or the ram by the horns and rustled that to the ground. You have pushed the college deep into tropical medicine as a specialty, and you, as, a, as in your own personal path, you've you've taken that as well. And now you're you're finishing your your master's thesis, and now you're looking at a PhD option. What are your thoughts on a doctorate? Well, the the PhD is it's going to be it's a big hurdle uh, for me, you know, where I'm right now. Luckily, uh, luckily, there are a lot of master's programs throughout the world in almost any discipline that you can think of. So if you have any geographic constraints, like as in there's not a school near you or a brick and mortar school near you that offers what you want uh, at the master's level, you can probably find it online. And, and there's a lot of there's a lot of reputable schools that, that have these programs, um, not so much with the Ph.D. option. So the. You know, the, the premier tropical medicine training institutions around the world, like, uh, you know, London, Liverpool, uh, Bangkok, uh, Nagasaki, just to name a few, um, all of their, all the tropical medicine PhD programs are in house. So you have to, you know, essentially you have to move to that part of the world in order to, to do the program. Um, I'm currently in Seattle, Washington, and I'm, I am not in a position to move, um, to those places. So, uh, you know, luckily London, University of London, uh, has master's degree options in, in the realm of tropical diseases. So I'm pursuing that, uh, nearly finished. And, uh, unfortunately, I, I haven't been able to find any PhD programs that have, uh, any, any similarity to what I'm doing now, other than, um, the, the place you, you mentioned the other day, the, the Semmelweis. Uh, program in, in Hungary, uh, and I've, I've been putting out some feelers to them uh, through uh, our good colleague uh, Chaba, uh, who was on the podcast recently. So I'm looking at their program, and uh, if I'm able to get in, then I, I'll be happy to pursue uh, a PhD with them. And I, I believe the program is, uh, I, I believe it's pathology or pathobiology or something along that line. Yeah, there's there's quite a few that you can choose from. Yeah, and yes, yeah, so, pathobiology would be what you're looking for. Isn't yeah, it? so so if I'm able to get in there, then I'll I'll go that route. Otherwise, uh, I'll be looking for I'll be looking for a PhD program that is yeah, not in that field, but something that would still be beneficial for me uh, professionally. So I think my my backup plan currently is to go for a PhD in medical education. And there are uh, there's a small handful of places where you can do that almost entirely online. There, there are, and Britain I think has three or four of those that have the the EDD uh, Doctor of Education, but focusing on medical education that that wouldn't be a bad option either. So, Jason, your path from knuckle dragger SF guy into trop med god has been a uphill battle for you. What advice do you have for any of our listeners who would like to learn about trop med? What are top five options would you give them to learn about tropical medicine? That uh, that's a really hard question. Um, I, I think the place to start is uh, you just have to get into the books. You have to get into the literature. Yeah. I think most people are, are visual learners. Uh, a good place to start might be, I, I've got the book sitting right next to me here on my shelf. Um, 
I've got, uh, so I'm looking at the Atlas of Tropical Medicine and Parasitology, sixth edition uh, from, from Mosby. Uh, so that might be a good place to start if you, you know, if you're not the kind of person that likes to just look at, you know, some of these books that look like you're reading a dictionary, right? It's just text uh, and nothing else. Yeah, so that might be a good place to start your uh, Tropical Medicine and Parasitology textbook, uh, sixth edition. That'd be a good place to start. Um, I've been getting more and more to, you know, the, the YouTube video learning uh, platforms. There's there's a million of them out there, as, as probably everyone is aware of. So that, that might be a, another good place to, to start. Would you suggest Parasites Without Borders as YouTube? Uh, yes, thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that because I would have, uh, that might have slipped my mind. Yes, Parasites Without Borders. And uh, so that, that's a great website. They've got a ton of uh, free content on uh, on parasites. Well, at least the uh, the eukaryotic parasites, so the, the protozoa uh, and worms, uh, basically. So that group, the, uh, the the guys that run that website, uh, also do podcasts. So they do they do a this week in parasitism. They do a this week in virology. There's this week in microbiology, uh, and there's a couple other ones. That they do, um, I would really encourage people to to go into that. Um, I've lift, I've listened to the first fifty episodes of Twip probably three or four times, and, and that's where uh, main uh, parasitologist uh, Dixon de Pommier, That's where he gets into the just kind of the basic science of you know things like malaria, uh, giardia, hookworm, and so forth. So I think that's a really good place to start. Uh, the gentleman that is the host for a lot of that, uh, Dr. Uh, Vincent Racaniello, he he has got some really good uh, YouTube videos uh, on virology. So he's a professor at Columbia University here in New York City. And if you if you just look up, you know, I think if you search Vincent and virology lecture, like those three words into YouTube, uh, you 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 have a, a series of of lectures from him that he teaches, I believe these are medical students at uh, Columbia University. That's right. Yeah, but the, the, there's several hours of, of lectures by him on there, and and it gets pretty deep into the weeds if you want to learn more about uh, virology. I would look at each of the TWIP, TWIN, and TWIV, the This Week in Parasitism, This Week in Microbiology, This Week in Virology, and focus on the first 50. So when you first look at the websites or you get it on your, I, I have it on my, my smartphone now, it just pops up every week. And they're talking about wazoo stuff right now because they're on episode, what, 295 or something like, actually, TWIV is on over a thousand podcasts now because of, of uh, COVID. They start doing weekly, bi-weekly, but anyway, ignore those. Start with the first 50 and that's where like in TWIP, this week in paratism, the like episode two is like malaria. Let's talk about malaria. This is malaria. They, and I, I agree with you. Listening to each one of those multiple times is, is how, and this is how I learn because I'm a knuckle dragger and I just need to hear it again and again and again. And, and, and seeing it on textbooks and, and then watching on YouTube videos. And of course, I'm lucky as a, as Dean Emeritus of the college, I get to sit in the back of the classroom and listen to you say the same lecture again and again and again. And, and this is how I've learned over the last seven years of being in the back and listening to you, listening to Dr. Mike Schertz, uh, listening to any of our guest lecturers coming in and, and speaking. Uh, um, Dr. Francis in, in Norway this summer, we flew him up from KCMC and listening to him 
that's how I learn. So if that's how you, the listener, needs to, to learn, then do it. And you have all these resources available to you. I would suggest book and oh, what's that one called? The green one, Jason, the Tropical Medicine Notebook. Uh, yeah, I've seen that one. I don't actually have it here. Uh, yep. And and the reason I like it, it has drawings, and I like drawings. <laughs> I and, and and what it's not going to do is have that, like Jason says, a wall of text. I, I did the Diploma of Tropical Nursing from London School of Hygiene, and that textbook was recommended for those of us who aren't smart enough to do a master's degree in tropical medicine, like you, Jason. But so you're suggesting Parasite Without Borders, so they have a YouTube video, like. 80 videos, I think. And they have a free textbook you can download from the, the website called Parasites Without Borders. And they were nice enough to ship nine of those all the way to Pretty Bay Malta when they heard about us. But you can get it for free. You suggested Twip Twim and Twiv. Those are podcasts. You suggested the textbook. What was that again, Jason? Yeah. So the, the textbook with lots of like great color pictures and stuff is it's just called The Atlas of Tropical Medicine and Parasitology. And that is uh, the publisher is Mosby on that. And another way to learn is to take our tropical medicine course, which will be an online course that is basically Jason, Dr. Schertz, and Francis speaking in different various uh, locations. We just we have all the video. We just need to put it together and put it out there as as a set CPD course. That's right. Any other suggestions you have on the new learner? Uh, yeah, another thing I was going to mention, and this this was in our last newsletter. Uh, so, uh, as you said, I'm the I'm the press chair for Quorum, and uh, I'm the editor for the newsletter. So, in our in our last uh, edition of the newsletter, which was uh, summer 2023, which came out, I guess it would have been about two weeks ago. Uh, so, I, I put a new section in there. I put well, I put two new sections in there. One's called one's called audio files. Uh, which is a play on words, but that is uh, essentially they're they're interesting podcast episodes that I've come across. So I I, I put one of ours in there with uh, uh, Doctor Edith, and then uh, one from MCrit, and then one from the uh, Prolong Field Care uh, podcast uh, with uh, Dennis Jerema. Uh, and then the other section I added to this edition of the Compass uh, it's called it's called Envisioning Information, which was. That was a title of a, a, a book I reviewed for the Compass uh, a couple years ago on, uh, on you know, the best ways to present information. So it's just uh, it's interesting and it catches the eye and is memorable. So it's, it's all the things that we we attend to when we're when we're educating. Right. We want to we want to convey the information and we want it to stick. Right. So so that's all that's always the challenge is, is you know, teaching information and making it stick. So, uh, so anyway, there's a new there's a new section in the compass called envisioning information, and it's brand new. So, what I've done with that so far is I've just put in a couple um, uh, a couple YouTube videos from channels that I really enjoy, uh, uh, whose whose content I enjoy. One of them is one of them is the Nysora. That's the New York School of Regional Anesthesia. So, so besides being a, a tropical medicine nerd, I'm also a anesthesia nerd, not that I'm an anesthesiologist, but um, uh, anesthesia techniques, I think, are crucial skills to have as a as a deployed healthcare practitioner where you don't have anyone around you who is an anesthesiologist or an anesthetist or nurse anesthetist or what have you. Um, 
you know, just because there's no anesthetist in the field doesn't mean that um, patients aren't going to come along that need uh, some kind of, you know, some form of anesthesia, right? Whether it's a, a local, a regional, or general anesthesia, uh, I think remote independent practitioners should have at least the basic skills that they can they can apply because you know, the excuse can't be, well, there was, there wasn't an anesthesiologist here. So we weren't able to do, we couldn't do a nerve block because no one around, no one was around that knew how to do it. So I think that's the wrong answer. I think if you're, uh, if you're going into that environment and you know, you're going to be the guy or the girl that has to kind of take care of everything that you, uh, the anesthetic skills are, are super, super crucial. Um, I, I think, I think not having that skill set is, I think it's inhumane and I think it's irresponsible um, to go into a location like that and not have the tools uh, and the training to do those kinds of procedures. Especially with the ultrasound we have nowadays that helps with the nerve blocks where you're hundred yep. percent successful. You're, you're seriously losing cool points if you don't have that ability for nerve blocks and use of ultrasound to get it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, this is kind of a long winded say long winded way of saying, um, so in the new envisioning information uh, section, there's there's a video there from Nysora on, and it's actually not for nerve blocks. Uh, they have a lot of other videos on things like, you know, difficult vascular access. So they had a video that caught my eye on uh, applying three venous tourniquets on an arm that's not easy to stick. And uh, that I was like, wow, I've, I've actually never done that. I've never thought like, oh, this... This person just needs more venous tourniquets on their arm. So I thought, that's pretty nifty. Uh, I'll just share that with our readers. Um, anyway, the other the other video that I put in there that is relevant to tropical medicine, uh, it's, from a, it's from a YouTube channel called Kurzgesagt. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And uh, Kurzgesagt has a lot of videos on, most of their videos are not medical, so they have a lot of, I don't know, it's, it's kind of all over the map. It's almost like a, it's almost like a Wikipedia page, but uh, these are just really uh, fascinating uh, things to look at. But they do have, uh, they have some really, really good videos on immunology. Uh, so they've got probably three or four videos on immunology that I've looked at. They have one that's just the complement system. Uh, so if you know, if you don't know what the complement system is and you're interested in infectious diseases, that's probably something you ought to check out because the, the complement system is very, it's a very important part of the immune system that isn't talked about very often. Usually we're just talking about, Indeed. yeah, we're talking about, you know, B cells and T cells and uh, phagocytes and, and that sort of stuff. But um, there's a lot of molecules in the bloodstream that are doing things that are kind of off the radar uh, or, you know, be working behind the scenes, such as the complement system. So I, I put one of their, I put basically their, uh, their foundational immune system video uh, in our last edition of the Compass. So yeah, that's another thing that people can have a look at. So you, you mentioned the Compass is a newsletter. So that's a good resource, not only for tropical diseases, but, but for everything in austere medicine. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I, I was going to, I was going to follow up on something you had mentioned earlier. You know, why, why did I, why did I want to get into infectious diseases over, you know, anything else that people in our peer group are really into, like there's people that are really into, um, you know, they're really into, you know, environmental medicine. Our colleague Eric is really into that. Uh, he's also really into like, you know, the, the blood transfusion stuff. 
Uh, and these are, these are super important things. Uh, if you're, if you're the lone practitioner in the field, um, it might be super important that you know how to keep people warm or how to cool people off or how to do blood transfusions or any of these, you know, procedures that we teach in our courses. Um, these things are crucial in a field setting and they're usually, uh, you know, for, for most practitioners working in a hospital, these are things that we don't even think about or they're not crucial because if it's something that you don't know how to do, there's someone down the hallway that is an expert in that you can just turf that patient off to that other person. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword when you're working in a Western healthcare system where you have, you're in a hospital full of specialists that can do everything. But when we take one person out of that ecosystem and plug them into a field setting, suddenly you don't, you're not surrounded by all the specialists and you have, you just have to figure it out on your own. Um, and that's, you know, that's how I was brought up into the medical system as, as an 18 Delta, you know, we, we had, you know, the, the fastest training course you can imagine the, the 18 Delta course where the, the information flow is just coming at you light speed for 12 months. And by the end of this thing, you're a paramedic and you're supposed to be able to do, you know, field anesthesia and do blood transfusions and, uh, you know, minor surgical techniques. And you're supposed to be able to diagnose tropical diseases as well as pull teeth and take care of animals. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's an incredible, uh, amount of things that they expect you to be able to do in the field. Yeah. A field practitioner, if they're by themselves, they are going to be expected to do all these things. You know, they're, if there's a sick animal or an injured animal, you know, even if you've never taken care of an animal before, people are going to look at you like, well, you've taken care of people and this is sort of like a person, you know, it's got four legs and a, and a head. <laughs> so you take care of it. Right. And so you're going to be put on the spot. So I, I feel like that's maybe the, the greatest thing I bring to quorum is, is having been trained and having served with that expectation that if you're the medical guy, you do everything. So you better be ready for everything. That is austere medicine, isn't it? You, you need to have a general understanding of everything. Yeah. You, you need, you really need to be a jack of all trades and, and where, where medicine is going in, you know, in hospitals, that, that's medicine is going in the opposite direction, right? We have people that are more and more and more specialized, uh, in hospital settings. And I think I, I 100% agree that is best practice medicine. You know, I want, if I'm going to get intubated in the hospital, I want the guy that's done it, you know, a thousand times in the last six months or whatever. Um, you want someone that's done it over and over and over again, not someone who does it occasionally. But again, in the field setting, it's, it's, a, it's reversed. Uh, I don't want, I don't want the neurosurgeon in the field necessarily. I want the jack of all trades in the field. That's one reason we have so many docs coming through our TTEMS program because they're getting a job with Medicine Sans Frontiers. They've never worked outside of the hospital. They have no idea about austere medicine. Uh, I was going to mention something else uh, also on the, uh, you know, why did I, why did I want to get into infectious diseases? I like to read a lot of history. Uh, so I've read a lot of uh, uh, historical books and I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a glutton for historical podcasts. Uh, I've, I've listened to this, you know, the, the Dan Carlin 16 hour series on world war one. It's so complex. And uh, you know, Americans had very little to do with World War One up until the very end. World War Two is a much bigger thing because we had a we had a much bigger part of that. But 
you know, right now I'm in the middle of my third or fourth listening of uh, it's almost 20 hours on Japan and World War II and, you know, how Japan got where it did when it decided to, you know, bomb Pearl Harbor, you know, the, the years and years and years that led up to that. And then once the war kicks off and then you have these battles occurring on all these Pacific islands where they are covered in jungles. And, you know, if you look at the casualties, this is most of your casualties in, in most wars are not caused by enemy. It's more it's more of a function of the environment that you're in. And it's the diseases that uh, that come about when you stick people that, you know, people that might not be from that area, you stick them in the field and expect them to, you know, live in the dirt and, you know, you're not washing your hands, you're drinking out of the river, you're exposed to all these uh, insect uh, vectors. That was my, my lecture at the Combat Medical Care Conference a few weeks ago. Part of the tropical medicine update was historically up until World War One, every war you lost more people from infectious disease than you ever did from conflict. And, and hand-washing antibiotics stopped that in its tracks. But we still have problems. I, I, I talked a bit about eastern Ukraine right now where we're starting to see that resurgence because of tuberculosis and HIV coming in along with the invaders. That's why I am interested in infectious disease and tropical medicine. It, it encompasses absolutely everything from, from this conflict medicine we see in eastern Ukraine all the way to what we're, we're seeing in KCMC and Moshi. In, or even malaria spreading in southern France and Florida and Texas. So due to global warming, we're seeing mosquito-transmitted diseases in places that didn't used to be. Yeah, the global warming certainly is going to you know, increase the ranges of some of the diseases that used to be tropical. Now they're, now they're subtropical or they're getting into the temperate areas, which are you know, becoming warmer. Um, you know, the other thing is... Uh, a couple of other things. One is antimicrobial resistance is a huge issue. Um, and, and the other one, which is probably even more impactful lately is global travel, right? So you've got, like I was mentioning earlier, you've got a, you've got a malaria naive person traveling to Africa because they want to do their safari because it was on their bucket list and they come home with malaria, right? So you've got returning travelers bringing back diseases, which, which may, uh, you know, they may be transmissible or not to the local population, depending on what it is. Uh, something like malaria is not normally going to be very transmissible. If you bring it back to Europe or the U.S., uh, it can happen, but it's pretty rare. Uh, versus something like uh, Ebola, which is highly transmissible no matter where you bring it in the world. Uh, that's just a contact transmitted disease that can spread uh, very easily if you let it go. Uh, so you have, yeah, you have these returning travelers, uh, people going into the tropics that uh, normally, you know, 500 years ago, your average European wasn't going to the tropics unless they were, you know, a, uh, you know, they, there was, they were part of the commerce of that area or they were an explorer or something like that. But now you've got thousands of people getting into these places uh, and potentially getting sick there or, not getting sick until they come home and they may or may not uh, transmit that disease once they get home. It only takes 
a strain of Ebola to not kill as quickly as it normally does and keeps the guy alive long enough so he can get back home to St. Louis and then he becomes infective and causes a global widespread zombie apocalypse. So we've been lucky so far. So far, so good. Knock on wood. Uh, well, Jason, it's it's been fantastic hour and change chatting with you and with our history and our friendship spanning 30 years this could have gone on for hours and hours and hours and we haven't even started with the pints because in seattle i'm sure it's still morning but uh, here in europe it's beer o'clock but i appreciate your input and we definitely have been a better college because you have been in it i'm saying this as a professional as, as the dean emeritus as well as personal friend and thanks for walking the path that you've walked on this planet and making the world a better place well, i appreciate that and uh you know this is always a two-way street abrick um i've i'm sure i've, I've benefited from quorum just as much as it's benefited for me and I, I hope we can keep that going this has been a presentation from the college of remote and offshore medicine foundation if you would like to earn cpd credit for this podcast you can join the council of members being a member of the college gives you free cpd credits free access to the virtual field guide and discounts on our e-learning courses you can join the team on the college website, which is quorum, C-O-R-O-M, quorum.org.